Someone said a specialist is a person who knows more and more about less and less. He develops a deep knowledge of a narrow speciality. The ultimate specialist would be a person who knows everything about nothing. Many scientists focus so intensely on a narrow field of knowledge that they sometimes miss the larger context of what their discoveries mean. Welcome to Truth in the Test Tube, exploring important scientific topics in the light of their wider perspective and significance. Let's increase the temperature, blend some logical analysis, and find out what truth bubbles up. The upside-down picture on the cover of Professor Anthony Flew's most recent book symbolizes the total change in his view of the world. His book, There Is a God, has the subtitle How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Professor Flew begins Chapter 7 by saying, When the mass media first reported the change in my view of the world, I was quoted as saying that biologists' investigation of DNA has shown, by the almost unbelievable complexity of arrangements needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved. When we see very complex features in nature, it's logical to reason that someone intelligent must have made nature. Years earlier, his atheism was weakening as he studied the complexity of even the simplest living cell and how difficult it would have been for natural processes to assemble it from non-living matter. It was even harder for him to remain an atheist when he learned that the first living matter already had the ability to reproduce itself genetically. He reasoned that there was no satisfactory naturalistic explanation for such a phenomenon. When Professor Flew finally abandoned atheism, atheists immediately denounced him. They accused him of being ignorant of the latest hypotheses regarding how the first living substance might have originated. Flew answers, I am myself delighted that biologists are now well able to produce theories of the evolution of the first living matter and that several of these theories are consistent with the so far confirmed scientific evidence. But, he adds an important warning, all current theories that biologists can devise require more time than the universe has existed. The universe is too young to have originated the first life form in the time that the universe has existed. Most physicists believe the universe is more than 13 billion years old. Is he saying that's not enough time for life to become alive? for non-living substances to evolve into living organisms? Yes, most scientists who study the origin of life rarely consider the wider implications of their findings. Flew continues, The philosophical question that has not been answered in origin of life studies is this. How can a universe of mindless matter produce beings with intrinsic ends? Non-living matter doesn't contain purpose. How can mindless matter produce beings with self-replication capabilities? The ability to reproduce itself. How can a universe of mindless matter produce beings with coded chemistry? Genetic codes such as DNA or RNA. 
So Professor Flew asks how non-living, non-reproducing matter was transformed into things that live and reproduce. He explains, here we're not dealing with biology, but an entirely different category of problem. Living matter possesses a goal-centred organisation that's not present anywhere in the matter that preceded it. Living matter is built with a complexity that enables it to metabolise and stay alive. Scientists and philosophers have developed some very elaborate speculations about how life might have originated. But none of their hypotheses about things like Darwin's warm little pond really work when they are tested. A second key problem is, after the first living organism originated, how did it get the ability to reproduce itself? Origin of life theories merely assume that reproduction existed at an early stage of evolution. But Professor Flew says he's never read a logically convincing materialistic explanation for the very first emerging of living matter from non-living matter. He says, in being alive, living matter possesses a purposeful organisation that's wholly absent from everything that preceded it. Living matter possesses a purposeful organisation that is not present in non-living matter. The very earliest life forms were not able to reproduce themselves. Flew asks how life forms originated the ability to reproduce. And he points out, without the existence of such a capacity, it would not have been possible for different species to emerge through random mutation and natural selection. These issues make him doubt that life could have originated without a wise creator designing them. So he has two reasons for doubting that life could have originated itself. First, life is too organised to have originated itself from lifeless matter. And second, living organisms have the capacity to reproduce themselves. And Professor Flew sees a third philosophical dimension to the origin of life. All life forms contain coding and information processing that is essential to their survival. Mathematician David Berlinski points out the remarkable nature of this phenomenon as he highlights the word code. He describes a code as a map or a system of linkages between two discrete objects. Geneticist Dr Francis Collins illustrated the amount of information that each cell of the human body contains. He pointed out that if we printed onto paper the information in one cell, the stack of paper would be as thick as a tall monument in Washington, 169 metres high. This leads to a question that's too big for a specialist to answer. Can we realistically believe that a system of coded information originated by natural processes? Or does our knowledge of how humans write codes make it logical to believe that God wrote the complex codes that we now see in nature, such as RNA and DNA? In the journal RNA, Origin of Life researcher Carl Woese evaluates current knowledge. He says the idea that some fundamental physical principle controls the way genes work is gone. He explains, not only is there no underlying physical principle, but the very existence of a code's a mystery. The coding rules are known, yet they provide no clue 
as to why the code exists and why the mechanism of translation is what it is. Is he saying we don't know anything about how genes and the genetic code originated? Yes, he elaborates the origins of translation before it became a true decoding mechanism are for now lost in the dimness of the past and I don't wish to engage here in speculations as to what processes might have preceded and given rise to it or to speculate on the origins of the genetic code. Most origin of life theories have concentrated on the chemistry of life. But life is more than just chemical reactions. The cell is also an information storing, information processing, information replicating system. Dr Paul Davis says, we need to explain the origin of this information and the way in which the information processing machinery came to exist. In other words, we need to explain the software and also the hardware that processes the information that the genetic software contains. That's a good summary. A gene is a set of coded instructions with a precise recipe for manufacturing proteins. Davis says the problem of how meaningful information can emerge spontaneously from a collection of mindless molecules subject to blind and purposeless forces is hard to imagine. Biologists do have theories of the evolution of the first living matter. But there is still a long way from any definitive conclusions. Dr Antonio Lascano, the president of the International Society for the Study of the Origin of Life, reports... Life could not have evolved without a genetic mechanism, one able to store, replicate and transmit to its progeny information that can change with time. Precisely how the first genetic machinery evolved also persists as an unresolved issue. In fact, the exact pathway for life's origin may never be known. If we know so little about how life originated... What do we know about how reproductive processes originated? One-celled life reproduces by splitting, but sexual reproduction is much more complicated. Dr John Maddox, the editor emeritus of the journal Nature, writes, The overriding question is when, and then how, sexual reproduction itself evolved. Despite decades of speculation, we do not know. And finally, Dr. Gerald Schroeder points out that the existence of conditions favourable to life still does not explain how life itself originated. Just because a climate doesn't kill life doesn't mean that climate is capable of creating life. Exactly. So how do we explain the origin of life? Nobel Prize winning physiologist George Wald argued that we choose to believe the impossible that life arose spontaneously by chance. More recently, after additional research and thought, he concluded that a pre-existing mind composed a physical universe that breeds life. Professor Flew concludes, This too is my conclusion. The only satisfactory explanation for the origin of such indirected, self-replicating life as we see on Earth is an infinitely intelligent mind. So, how did life become alive? As Lord Kelvin said, if you think strongly enough, you will be forced by science to the belief in God. 
Let me ask where you live. That determines which email address you'll need to contact us. In most countries, use TruthTest at truthinthetesttube.org. That's TruthTest at truthinthetesttube.org. Listeners in India have their own address, testtube at radio882.com. That's testtube at radio882.com. Thanks for making Truth in the Test Tube a street for two-way communication. <laughs>